I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Welcome back to all of our listeners. We're glad to have you here with us again. Absolutely. We always enjoy having you with us. Yes. Now, today we are going to be talking a little bit about uh, some musical history again. Now, Dad, uh, last time you talked about your career in radio, you told us about the time you got to meet and interview uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the group. And today uh, we're going to talk about another group that you got to meet. You had the privilege of uh, getting to sit down and actually have a whole experience besides an interview. You got to have a whole experience with them, and that group is The Birds. The Birds. Uh, and, of course, you know what some of their most famous songs were. Uh-huh. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. And, hey, uh, Mr. Tambourine mm-hmm. Man. Oh, I, I promise not to yeah. sing on these podcasts. I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't want to have to cut your microphone. <laughs> right. And uh, the other one is uh, To Every Season. I don't know if that's the actual name, but turn, 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 turn. Yeah, there you go. Yes, those uh, that uh, verses, by the way, are verses from uh, the book uh, of Ecclesiastes in yes. the Bible. So, I, which I don't think many people would know that they just really like the sound of it. Exactly. And so, anyhow, um, we're going back some years now in my memory bank, all the way back to the winter of 1966. Uh, Back in 66, the birds were still fairly recent additions to the music scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a junior at the College of William and Mary at the time, and I was working as a a part-time rock and roll disc jockey at the local commercial radio station, which was WBCI. It no longer exists today, but Mm -hmm. WBCI was the 500-watt voice of Williamsburg, Virginia back then. This was after you had gotten your uh, free office for programming classical music? Yes, because uh, I mentioned to you that I started off my career in radio with the college radio station, WCWM, and everybody wanted to be announcers, but nobody wanted to do some of the ba- behind-the-microphone work, such as uh, the director of classical music programming. So I said, well, you know, I'll go ahead and uh, do that just to get my foot in the door, and turns out it came with a private office. So I was one of the very few freshmen on campus at William & Mary at the time who had a private office in the Phi Beta Kappa building where the radio station mm-hmm. so was located. So when you were skipping class, you had a place <laughs> to go to. I did, I did, uh, and it was very nice uh, to have, uh, believe me. Um, I did uh, <clears throat> have uh, one uh, friend over there from <clears throat> WCWN, um, his name was Steve Kirkaroo. Uh, he was a student volunteer at the college station. And back then, uh, when the school's inter-fraternity council decided to book the show for the spring dance, which included the birds and Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, Gary, it was the most expensive event ever booked by the college up to that point. Really? How much <clears throat> did it cost them? Don't know. But, um, but you know it's the most expensive. Yeah, I, I uh, gleaned that. I didn't know that at the time, but I gleaned that from uh, an issue of Billboard magazine, which uh, did a write-up about this concert. And so uh, it was the most expensive event booked by the college up to that moment. So Steve was put in charge, and 
Uh, he was smart enough to know that he'd need lots of help to pull this thing off successfully. Sure. So. I was one of the people he drafted uh, to assist with the event. The nice thing is I had a car, so I would be able to transport um, performers between the airport and the college and and back to their hotel room or whatever was needed in the uh, way of transportation and then assist in any way with the actual concert. So you were a gopher. Go for this, go for that. That's right. Exactly. And you know what? Uh, being a gopher uh, is uh, really exciting and interesting. Uh, it can be. I'd never done anything like this before in my life, so it was something else again. Uh, the dance, uh, as you could imagine, was held on a Saturday night. Sure. Uh, Gary, it drew more than 2,000 people. <clears throat> wow. Now, this is a small, sleepy southern college town, mm-hmm. and that dance drew 2,000 people. So pretty much the whole town. <clears throat> Uh, well, uh, uh, probably at least uh, a lot from the uh, college community. Now, the last song finished up around 11.30 that night, and I was younger back then, so staying up till 11.30, you know, wasn't the kind of chore it is today. I was going to say, because most of the time you don't make it past 5.30. Yeah, 9.30. But uh, the last song finished up around 11.30 that night, uh, and like I say, I had a big old Oldsmobile. So I was assigned to get the group to their rooms at the Holiday Inn. And this being the birds, right? Yes, yes. Uh, because both groups couldn't fit into one car, obviously. So, and what was the other group besides the birds? Uh, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. And in a future podcast, I have a story about them. Oh, I like Sam the Sham. Well, anyways, after the birds checked in and had uh, some time to settle in, I went to lead singer Jim McGuinn's room. He was Jim back then. He later changed his name to Roger. For some reason, well, was his name was Jim McGuinn his stage name and his actual name was Roger? No, no, uh, he had some kind of weird religious experience uh, from some Eastern gotcha. religion that uh, told him he needed to change from Jim to a Roger. So. Right. But <clears throat> okay, I don't know all the details about that. Uh, so, anyways, this was Jim McGuinn back then, <clears throat> and as I opened the door. I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw this wild group of guys all jumping up and down in the beds. They were acting just like little kids. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that, Gary. I mean, <laughs> these guys were, you know, a top uh, recording group in the nation, and here they are jumping up and down in the beds. Yeah. Like, oh, what's the first thing you do to relax after a big concert? Oh, let's just jump around on the up bed. And down on the beds? Yeah, Jeez, why not? I, why not? I mean, uh, that took me back. So uh, did you know you were working with true professionals at that point? (laughs) And somehow, though, I I managed to get my wits about me and I asked them if their accommodations were okay, And they they said yes. But then uh, McGuinn, he was still wearing his trademark granny glasses. You remember those? He had the uh, granny glasses that were his trademark. Mm -hmm. He asked if there were somewhere they could go to get some food. Well, I had the sad duty to remind him that he was in the sleepy little southern town where they usually rolled up the sidewalks by 9 o'clock each night, and Saturday was no exception. And here it is now. It's shortly past midnight. So then uh, you're not going to believe that your dad can come up with zany plans. But Oh, get out of town. You come up with crazy plans? (laughs) Wow, I've never experienced that in my whole life. But this was the first zany plan that I ever hatched in my life, honest. Was it? Was it really your first one? I think so. And it, it just popped into my head. Here I'm seeing these guys, these adults jumping up and down on the bed. So uh-huh. think zany, right? Why not? So I told McGuinn that 
he if if he and his group would all pile into that vintage Oldsmobile of mine and ride over to the local burger joint with me, offer some autographs and a generous tip. I underline the word generous. Sure. Maybe we could persuade the teenage crew on duty to cook up a batch of burgers and fries. Now, Sounds flawless to me. What do you think their reaction was? Well, I, I, I'm willing to bet that they probably said, yeah, let's do it. I'll, I'll go for that. Exactly. Zany was fine with them. So uh, rather than look at me like a crazy man, the group thought the plan sounded great. So they were still in their performance outfits, Gary. Mm -hmm. They literally ran out that door at the Holiday Inn. They piled into my Oldsmobile. And it was obvious that they were really looking at this, not as an inconvenience, but as an adventure. An adventure? Or were they motivated by hunger? Uh, well, hunger was there. But boy, this was a late night adventure into this uh a town where the carpet had been rolled up to see if we could go ahead and achieve our goal. So get some burgers they and fries. Were really with it. They were really with this. And, and, okay. Uh, and so sure enough, um, we got to the burger place and I met resistance at the, uh, at the uh, order window. Okay. So let, let me visualize this real quick. So you pull up parking lots, empty. You probably see a few uh, teenagers uh, in there mopping and cleaning things up and you go up to the door and what do you say? And I uh, tap on the window. Okay, of course. Uh, and and uh, there's a surly teenager uh, cleaning the grill, and he shouted out, "We're closed." <laughs> oh, I didn't know. <laughs> Get out of town for yeah, real. Yeah, uh, but that's when I made my big move. Mm -hmm. So I said, and I pointed, "Just take a look at who's in my car. They'll sign autographs for everyone inside, you included, and give you a generous tip." Ooh, I now had the surly kid's attention. Yeah, but was the reaction immediate, or did it take him a few minutes to, like, realize who was in that car? Oh, no, yeah, it took a few seconds to, you know, kind of squint your eyes and look into the dark or, you know, it was see. But it was all lit up in the parking lot, so it wasn't too hard for them to see. And, and then it took a few seconds for it to dawn on them, and to then a few more seconds for them to believe right. that these incredible rock stars... Uh -huh. We're sitting outside their burger joint. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't immediately uh, come to that realization. So it, it took them a little bit. Yeah, they had that, to process that mm -hmm. one a little longer. They had to process it for a bit. And, you know, I'm thinking he must have said, what kind of idiot would try to reopen a burger <laughs> joint after it had closed at midnight? You're in a college town. I'm pretty sure there's yeah. a lot of idiots that would try and open up a mm -hmm. burger joint at, at that time. At, of the at night. least, uh, you know, a sober idiot uh, yeah. would... Uh, but anyways, a major change came over his facial expression, and I knew at that moment he was hooked that he recognized the famous face with the granny glasses sitting in my car in the front passenger mm -hmm. seat looking back at him from the rolled-down window. Now, did you have Jim McGuinn give like a little wave and wink to no, really seal the deal there? I didn't tell Jim McGuinn uh, what to do. He he knew. He uh, knew what to do. He knew uh, what was going on. He's a, he was a professional performer. Okay. Those, guys, those guys all knew how to play this, and they were playing their role perfectly. Uh -huh. They were into this. They really liked this zany idea, I think, more than the burgers. I, really. Yeah, I have a feeling this probably wasn't their first time trying to use their uh, celebrity to uh, get uh, a little something extra out of uh, yeah, yeah. a restaurant or whatever so then everybody including all of the uh, birds in the car heard holy something or other <laughs> <laughs> bleep it's the birds 
Well, at that point, with that screaming going on inside the um, burger joint, the other employees were literally rushing to the store's checkout window. Okay. So and the store was officially open again. So at that point, there were a whole bunch of employees glaring out the window looking at the birds. Mm-hmm. So the musicians, they were all seated calmly in my car, and they took it all in with no expression on their faces, but they must have been sure. pinching themselves to keep from laughing. Oh, I'm sure it was And a then sight. It, it was obvious to me that they were thoroughly enjo- enjoying the unfolding event and the excitement that it was just starting to create. Mm-hmm. The next thing I saw was someone starting the grills back up. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end my zany idea made the march 1966 edition of billboard magazine they wrote this up it was too mm-hmm. good to resist yeah and that was the college edition because we've we've since tried to look to see if we could find new copies now if you go on google they do have uh digital copies of that magazine and right. I, I can't I can't remember if it's the college edition or college attraction. Or campus edition. Campus edition or campus uh, attraction. One of the two. Right, something like that. But uh, fortunately, I have my original copy of the magazine. And uh, that was helpful for tonight's uh, podcast because I I can't remember much about the order, but the the magazine brought some details uh, back into my memory bank. Uh, They report that we came back with two dozen cheeseburgers and Cokes. I know we had French fries, too. They didn't mention oh, the French fries. Oh, sure, fry, sure. But I didn't uh, realize they were cheeseburgers. I didn't realize we had two dozen. So thankfully, uh, thankfully the uh, magazine article brought those uh, details back. Um, and, yes, I, I see you're wondering. Uh, everybody in that restaurant received autographs and a generous tip from Mr. Tambourine Man himself, Jim McGuinn. Now, did anybody take a photograph uh, in the Burger Chef with uh, the birds? No. First of all, uh, you don't carry a camera to work with you. Well, but sometimes they have promotional things that happen, and you know, sometimes they keep a spare roll of film in the drawer or a disposable camera, you know, and or somebody rushes home real quick. Hang on, I'm just around the corner, and they grab a camera. Yeah, 1966. I can guarantee you, they didn't. They didn't have smartphones. I know they. I know they didn't have smartphones. So they, I'm just kind of surprised somebody didn't have. I mean, like I know a lot of teenage girls who keep a disposable camera. Back in high school, uh-huh. uh, when disposable cameras were popular, they would keep a camera or a disposable camera in their purse uh, for any kind of occasion that would pop up, or just to you know take a random picture every now and then. So I'm surprised somebody didn't. No, and you know what? I'm sure uh, when they got home. Uh, the only proof they had of this was their autographs. And that, but, was but that was what they had to show proof that this really happened, and I'm sure people believed them. Well, that's my incredible story about uh, what happened there. A little bit about the birds in general, I think, would be appropriate at this time, Gary. So let's, let's hear a little bit of that birdie history. Yes, uh, they were formed in early 1964, about two years before this all happened. And they were a trio. It was Jim McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby. They were, they were just a trio back then. Mm. And then <clears throat> they uh, expanded into a five-piece group. So you still had uh, Jim McGuinn. He played a 12-string guitar, by the way. And the other famous person back in, in those days that played a 12-string guitar was, um, um, oh, oh, his name is uh, Glenn Campbell. Glenn oh, Campbell. Glenn Campbell. Yeah, Glenn Campbell was known for his 12-string guitar. And Jim McGuinn played the 12 string. And of course, Jim also was, uh, did vocals. Gene Clark, he played the tambourine and vocals. David Crosby, he played rhythm guitar and vocals. 
And then there was Chris Hillman. He played the bass guitar and vocals. And then there was my friend. This is a fellow that I spent some time with backstage. He was the drummer, Mike Clark. He's the only one who didn't do vocals. Just drums. Just drums. And let me tell you a little bit about my friend Michael. He was recruited largely due to his good looks. And you've seen what he looks like uh, sitting next to me uh, backstage because we have a photo of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can... Vaguely Beatles, remember what Beatles, he looked like. Yeah. The Beatles uh, haircut. Uh, yeah, very haircut. popular at that time. Everybody yeah. wanted to be like the Beatles. And he was recruited largely for those good lucks rather than his uh, musical experience because he had only played conga drums in the past, not rock and roll drums. Okay. In fact, he didn't even own his own drum set uh, at first. So when he first uh, started playing with the birds, uh, he had to play on a prop that was uh, cardboard boxes that were cut and painted to look like drums and uh, a tambourine. And uh, he did own his own drumsticks, so he'd use his own drumsticks. But, <laughs> but he had pretty much cardboard set up. Yeah, can you believe that? That's crazy. But uh, by the time he was doing the concert at William & Mary in 66, um, he was playing real drums, real rock and roll drums, and he was an authentic drummer. And I enjoyed uh, chit-chatting with him uh, backstage. He was, mm -hmm. every time I would get with a group, there would always be one or two that would be very personable, very down-to-earth. Right. And then some of the others would be kind of standoffish or not nearly as open or, or right. as friendly. That happened with the Beatles. We'll be talking about that down the line. Yeah, because you had quite the unique experience with the Beatles I as did. well. <laughs> I did. Uh, but uh, Mike Clark, uh, he was great. Um, he was absolutely wonderful. I really liked him uh, immensely after after this experience. Now, there was nothing wrong with Jim McGuinn, but <clears throat> he was just kind of, um, uh, I don't know, just kind of an all-business type of personality. He didn't seem to exude a, a much of a sense of humor or whatever. He was just kind of matter-of-fact and kind of, I don't know, uh, kind of serious almost. So that that was kind of the way he was. And uh, um, so those kind of folks don't seem, you don't seem to get quite as close to people like that, at least at first. But uh, shortly after that concert at William & Mary, <clears throat> one of the original members left the band. That was Gene Clark. Right. And uh, he did it under some unusual circumstances, which relate back to our podcast about Peter, Paul, and Mary. Gene Clark, as a youngster, had witnessed a fatal plane crash. Oh. And so uh, that he couldn't quite get that out of his mind. And you remember how I was talking about Mary Travers and how she had uh, quite a bit of anxiety getting on the planes. Right. Because it was still fresh in her mind as to the plane crash, what happened with uh, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. The and Big Bopper. The Big Bopper. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> she also... Um, had uh, panic attacks and fear about flying. However, Mary Travers always seemed to be able to overcome that, and so she was able to perform with the group and go wherever they went. But Gene Clark couldn't. And so one day when he was on a plane that was bound for New York, for some reason uh, that anxiety just took over his head and he refused to get on the flight. Oh. And that's not good when you have a concert engagement somewhere else and no. you have to get on the flight. And uh, so I believe Jim McGuinn, uh, after that, told him, uh, you know, if you can't fly, you can't be a bird. <clears throat> so wow, Gene Clark left the group, and 
Unfortunately, he died in 1991 at the young age of 46 from heart failure brought on by a bleeding stomach ulcer. So, you know, that guy was really uptight, really had a lot of anxiety issues. And stress can cause health problems. Yeah, so it caused an early death for Gene Clark. That's too bad. I was thankful to have had him in my vintage Oldsmobile and uh, allow him to get a couple cheeseburgers from the burger joint um, that day back at William & Mary. Then about uh, two years after the concert... Uh, Dave Crosby and Michael Clark, that was my friend backstage, the drummer, mm-hmm. also left the group. So uh, two years after I was with the original five, they split up. Almost all of them were gone. Right. And then didn't uh, Crosby form the band Crosby, <clears throat> Stills, and Nash? Yes, he did. And so I, I keep thinking the birds who accompanied me to the hamburger joint in Williamsburg in early 1966 had pretty much disbanded a couple years um, after I met them. Oh, you didn't jinx them, did you? I hope not. <laughs> and then uh, one last sad note. I hate to end on sad notes, but uh, yeah. it does bring uh, kind of closure to the entire story. My friend Michael Clark, he died of liver failure. Uh, apparently, I didn't know this at the time. <clears throat> he um, had many years of alcohol abuse, so he died in December of 93, and, and he was only 47 years old. Wow. But I still have that wonderful photo of him, that glorious day back in Williamsburg, and he, too, was able to enjoy a couple late-night cheeseburgers from the Williamsburg Burger Joint. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing they have going for him is they have a, a legacy of uh, amazing music that <clears throat> lasts to this day and is used in movies and TV shows. Um Oh, yeah, I love All the time. I love their music. It's wonderful. It was part of a great era. Well, I I have to say, that was a fantastic story. And once again, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And that was your incredible story.